Hello and welcome to the library and it's in the New York Public Library's podcast about books, culture, and what to read next. <laughs> I'm cranky. <laughs> and that's Crystal and Frank. Cranky. Crank. Twistle. <laughs> it's we haven't we haven't had a celebrity name. Fwistol. Yeah. I sort of like that. Crystal. 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 Crank. It's pretty good. I guess Crank is more descriptive. A, yeah. It's also um a variation of a, is it a street drug? drug, if I'm not sure mistaken. Oh. <laughs> Which I don't think applies here. Uh, I thought the opposite. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> Scandals. Scandals. <laughs> mm. How have you been? So how you doing, hon? What's going on I'm in the crystal right. world? The world of crystal. Crystal. Well, <laughs> you try to hold your face on? I know. I feel like it's one of those mornings. I'm just like, my sinuses are driving me up the wall. Um, oh, really? Yeah, always. I think there's a lot of temperature changes. So it looks like so bright and sunny. And I'm just like, I don't understand. Is it spring yet? Somebody said happy summer on the street yesterday. Oh, like, really? Yeah. I'm like, not yet, hon. It was like 50 <laughs> which, degrees. I was which, wishful thinking, yes. Uh, I think today's going to be another warm one, we'll which is nice. There. Yeah. Just my sinuses don't can't handle it. The fluctuation. Yeah. They can't handle the fluctuation, but I hope your sinuses can handle me today. Always. Because I'm going to mm-hmm. give you a whole lot of Anna Karenina, baby. Yes. <laughs> a whole lot of it. But... Uh, so we're still under construction-ish at Jefferson mm-hmm. Market, which everyone knows and is exhausted with hearing. And we, as we were saying, actually, I should say this publicly, um, because everyone understands, but when you're in a construction site or like renovation site, you know, you realize that sometimes very small things or seemingly small things to a lay person are take forever to manage and that's just the way it is like you know there's a pipe leaking and then you have to go through the whole system like two floors away to figure out where it's coming from Mm -hmm. uh and that could take a long time and then you know when you tell somebody like what took you so long to open it's like well there was a leaky pipe they're like what that doesn't make Mm -hmm. sense or people who actually the most sympathetic people are people who say oh yeah i had work done in my apartment and i know full well what you're talking but you know, it's just frustrating. I want to get get going. It's a long little, process. Lots my domain of, to um, create and run wild with. Mm-hmm. So it's it's true. I'm very distractible, which is unfortunate. I probably say this before, but like I'm literally reading out of Corinda, which I'm loving, and then mm-hmm. I'll suddenly start thinking: Should I paint the chrome legs on that table? Because I'm just thinking about getting ready to open and making things really special. And so I'm just like little, like I'll drift off and I'll be like, I need to get another bar stool, counter height stool for the reading room. And then I'm like, oh, wait, wait, I'm reading about an ill-fated love affair. Sorry. But I mean, are you sparked by things that are happening or descriptions in the book where you Maybe. see or read about a Chrome or some version of that? And you're like, oh, this would be nice. Well, I doubt there's a chrome table in 1870s. <laughs> just some version of that. <laughs> but maybe. Actually, I never noticed that. It's just a focus issue, which I already have trouble with as it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, reading is usually just my way to 
block everything out, but I've been less inclined to. I'm having, I think, a low level, which might get bigger. And hopefully I, I've learned from the past because I've been through some big projects in, in my mm-hmm. career that I'm not going to get too anxious and concerned about um, reopening and having everything be perfect <laughs> I'm, and the public to be like amazed and knocked out. I want them to be happy, but they will be. And I don't, and I can't, I realize now I can't, I did not plan on talking about this. And it, of course oh, I keep am. Going. Keep going. Um, I've realized that the long time it's been taking has ma- enabled me to realize certain things. I've realized that I'm never going to be, hundred percent for reopening. Like, well, I'll always be in process. Yeah. I mean, just as a, as a person, like as a manager, I'll be always in process of creating things like the, the minute I like go, all right, I just want that shelf painted. And then the shelf gets painted. Then I'm already like, Oh, wait a minute. We need to do that door now. So I'm already onto something else. And I, I didn't really realize that about myself until lately, which is such an obvious thing. Like I'm never quite not under construction. <laughs> Um, but I guess I want special and magic. I want to at least create something um, that's aside from the sort of mechanics of the adding a bathroom and an accessible mm-hmm. ramp, which is very important to the branch, but something special. So I, hopefully no, I, I won't get too emotionally wrought about it. I mean, I, I think it's good that you're thinking about those things. I think they're very um, relatable. The idea of like, it's it's never going to be perfect and you want to keep working on it until it's to this kind of impossible standard, in which case like it'll never get done and realizing that, you know, it's always in progress, all that kind of stuff. I, I think like your, your motives are like so pure and beautiful that you want to have this really beautiful space for everyone. But I know so many people who are just going to be excited to, have the library open like there could be zero renovation and just to have it open again i think people will be thrilled <laughs> and to see the stuff yeah. and all that kind of stuff so i be I so hard on so. yourself I, yeah well yeah and it's also not um not pinpointing the one person who's sort of like what took so you know complains yeah. and not making them the whole show because i think you're right in general people will be very happy mm-hmm. i mean um, now that said i i don't yeah. think it would be bad to have a, a purple velvet Shea lounge to be added to the floor. Just to uh, don't dress even it think up you're joking. <laughs> don't even think you're joking. There is a room upstairs that, really? we, that, we, that we call the May West room, which is a uh-huh. small program space that doesn't have a lot of architectural details. My fantasy for that room, which is sort of coming true, mm-hmm. is turning it into like a reading salon. Oh, like a yes. Victorian-esque salon with art, which yes. I've already have some like gilt edged mirrors and I want to get a chandelier and I think I have wallpaper. Um, but I was on a uh, line looking for uh red velvet Queen Anne sofas. Don't, I, I'm not kidding you. The, I this was sounds amazing. I, I think you should definitely go to, was it the Frick to get like lots of inspiration there? <laughs> Um, I would like to help you. I want to help you choose the art. Uh, I'd like to go to museums. I went to the Brooklyn Museum recently to see their climate and crisis exhibition. And one of the things I love about museums is uh, like, I I like to admire their frames, (laughs) which sounds really dumb because we're supposed to be there for the arts. But I I especially love elaborate golds or neat frames. Exactly. There is (laughs) a spot in uh the new lobby that that was created here that, um, (laughs) has a giant wall and I want like a literal like 20 foot by 15 foot 
gold framed mirror. Mm, yes. It also faces stained glass. So I want to see the reflection in it. Uh-huh. I mean, a like a, gi- a you know, one of those giant painting frames mm-hmm. that are in the Met or the Frick. I mean, like those humongous ones. Yes, like, yes. That's unaffordable, my darling. Oh, Not well, on a is, budget. This is what you do because this is what I did. You go to Ikea. <laughs> and then you paint you, it. Yes. I, I, I got like one of those cheap ornate frames. I think it was actually like a picture frame. And then I used some kind of metallic gold wax. Mm-hmm. So it looks very mm-hmm. fancy and gold. Um, you know, I should talk to you. I should talk to you because we got that DIY craft this. All it's right, going to be know, amazing. You know, all right, we'll get off this, but like, no, we have when to. I did, no, well, actually I'm, I'm what you said really resonated with me because about your creativity, because for the most part, like when I do something, I want to do it for real. Like I mm-hmm. feel like Jefferson Market in the library deserves nothing less. Like if I'm going to get um, a frame, it's got to be antique. It's got to be a mm-hmm. real deal thing. And then I struggle to figure out how to do it. But since I've been away, like working at other branches and working with other librarians who are crafty like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, to be honest, I felt a li- I had a little less to lose in other branches because it wasn't my own home branch. <laughs> And I could just sort of do uh-huh. whatever. So when whenever we another librarian would come up with a project, like, you know, let's take that thing down and patch up the wall and paint it or something. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, all right, I don't care if it looks good because it's not Jefferson Market, <laughs> which is a terrible thing and an honest thing to say. But then I did it and I realized, oh, I can yeah. actually do this. Like, I, I actually, you know, can have a little bit of skill that I can do. So w- what I'm saying is that you, when you said what you just said about the wax and the gilt. It's like, now I feel a little more emboldened to actually do things myself before I would struggle to get them done by people who really know what they're doing. But then I realized I could do some things myself and make some mistakes and it could be imperfect, but the effect could be quite glamorous. And I believe me, there would be somebody who would think, Oh, that's a nice antique frame. And you're like, Ikea with gilded. <laughs> um, so I think know, you're right. Think Getting of it crafty too. is important. Think of it too as like I think of it as like kind of a little adventure, a little foray foray into something new and like a placeholder for when you do come across that perfect antique frame as some auction house, right? See, then you get it later. Well, see, you just see, you're so smart. You just hit on my my psyche that I've learned a lot about is that before I would be like, no. We have to get the the real deal frame now. And then, as I just said, I realized, you know what? You're always in process and construction. So you've done things that you thought were the real deal, then you replaced them anyway because you found something that worked better. And it's never like a set thing. I mean, certain things stay stable, but, you know, for the most part, it's like we're always up for grabs to keep evolving and to keep uh, getting making it better and adding new things and blah, blah, blah. So, oh God, I have so many fantasies. In that that salon, May West room, I want to, there's a beautiful like flat surfaced wall, like a, it's a very strangely shaped room, multiple angles. And I want an artist to paint something romantic on it. Like have a, have a mural, like in Cafe des Artistes or something like that, like something that people will be like, ooh, I want to see the mural in the May Western. I don't know. We'll see. Fantasies, but it's all about fantasies. 
What? I, there's a lot of drilling that's happening above. Oh. So I keep trying to like mute past oh, the I don't so people I don't hear, hear that. Okay, you're good, actually good. quiet on my end. Well, it might be the the um, Google Meet noise cancellation or something. Like well, that. let's but, talk. About, let's get to books before I lose my thread. Okay, yes, but I was going to say, um, send me pictures. I want to see this wall. Um, I'm very excited I, you know, for you. Here we are. Good, not talking about books. I'm going to have a oh, okay. meeting oh, well, with no, an I'll, artist I'll... that I know that, to mm-hmm. talk just about that. So it's it's I'm making it happen. Like I want to make things happen. Yeah, and I, that's what I, I miss can... most about not being a Jefferson Market. I'm making things happen. I don't have as much authority in other branches because mm-hmm. they're not mine. Even though I made some changes, but whatever. Would you say? I was going to say, like, I can totally tie this conversation to books by saying, like, I think uh, thinking about, like, crafty ways to do these projects is very much uh, a a library worker's bread and butter. We know the value of a good deal, much like Jack Reacher in the Lee Child series, (laughs) Reacher, who is always obsessed about the value of a good deal. See, I've tied it into books. There you go. Did you, is that what you read? No, I'm, no, I'm, this is like a. My, I've been trying to read the Reacher series for a very long time, mm-hmm. and I've gotten pretty far in them. And um, as I read the books, I've, I've been, what's the word, analyzing Reacher as this sort of interesting, moralistic, vengeful character who's actually not really good at like saving people's lives, but is very good at getting revenge for <laughs> people who die on his watch. Anyways, that's a whole different thing. But there's a, there's like a prime. Reacher series that came out recently. So I think there's been a renewed interest in the book. Prime? Uh, oh, sorry. I think it's, I think I want to say Amazon Prime. Um, one of those oh, like streaming sites. It's a TV streamer. series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think uh, people mm. like really like it. Very different from the Tom Cruise series. So I don't I'm know. Maybe out. that's a series to talk about later. <laughs> After you finish Anna Karenina. I'm like I'm glazing over Reacher. in boredom. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly my style. Actually, I always say not exactly my style, but then if I watch one, I might be like, this is fun because I'm. Yeah, it's like a. I don't know myself very well. Least procedural type. I don't know. Well, that leads into what I was going to say. I mean, when I say (laughs) I don't know myself very well, or actually, when when one says, oh, that's so not me, Mm-hmm. we might be saying that because we're sort of cleaving to, and I've said this before in last Anna Karenina discussion about mm-hmm. we might be cleaving to a certain illusion or delusion we have about ourselves that we need to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said before about Anna Karenina, which is 1870s Russia, Tolstoy, big passionate love affair at the center of this book among like seven or eight main characters. Um where, um, what was I going to say, about cleaving to an idea of the self that may or may not be fully true. I mean, the characters in this book um, have that all over the place. I mean, that was interesting because I thought about, now that I'm like more than halfway through it, like 500 pages, it's 800 pages, um, I'm getting a better sense of like what Tolstoy is all about really in, in this novel. and. Um, it's definitely, it made me think of a lot of things because there's, like I said, eight characters. It's, it's, you know, you could say that Vronsky and Anna Karenina's love affair is at the center of it. She's married. She's having an affair with this, this guy and that causes a lot of scandal. So it brought a lot of ideas up about like, what is soap opera? Like you could call this like one 
original giant soap opera. And why do we think negatively of the term soap opera if we do think negatively of it? And in a way, I was thinking like soap opera has deals with trenchant, deep emotions. Like it, that's why it's so persuasive and attractive. It's, it deals with real emotions. And I think in some ways you could describe the difference like in Anna Karenina, which obviously is a book, but there are soap opera-esque books, but that in soap opera, characters have like our one basic realm of emotion, like they're villains or they're good or they're, they're struggling or they're all sorts of things. And they're pretty much one thing. And if they change, there's like a turning point where, where they become something else and they become like a hero or an anti-hero or they turn bad or whatever. And in, in a way, Anna Karenina, the book, the characters in the book don't have turning points. Like they mm-hmm. don't, you'd expect it. They have like a, just another point in their life, just like our own lives that we live. Like when we're living a life, we don't say, oh my God, this is the turning point. Or if we do say this is the turning point, we often, it doesn't often hold. Like mm-hmm. you can look back in your life and say, um, Oh, like when I was in college, I had this moment, revelation, emotional revelation, where I thought, oh, this is a turning point in my life. I mean, you look back, you're like, yeah, right. You just did the same things after that anyway. It didn't change that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that the these characters have fluctuating emotions, and uh, but they don't necessarily turn into something new. They don't change. Like, for example... Um, well, for a really great scene at the beginning of part four, um, well, this is a spoiler, which I said yeah. I spoilers about this, is that Anna, who's married to her husband, Alexei, mm-hmm. gets pregnant. And it's clearly pregnant by her lover, Vronsky. Mm-hmm. And she's bedridden and sort of um, not feeling well in the throes of her pregnancy. And it happens that her husband and her lover both come to her at the same time and are in the room with her, like the three of them, which is sort of a verboten thing. Like the husband had said at one point, like, I don't even want to know about him. He cannot come into this house, but he's there. And so it's obviously high emotion. And um, they're both husband and lover, very distraught and crying. And Anna's sort of being a little bit like, you know, in pain, but sort of just like wanting to emotionally get everything together. And Vronsky is, has his, it's a great image the way that Tolstoy describes it. it has his, his hands over his face because he's so upset and maybe being a man and not showing him crying. Mm-hmm. And Anna says to her husband, remove his hands from his face, like take, take his hands away from his face. So the husband, Alexei pulls Vronsky's hands away from his face to reveal his crying face. Mm-hmm. and also to see his own crying face. Um, and in that moment, like I said about points and turning points, the husband, Alexei, has a shift emotionally. He said he feels like, this guy is suffering. I feel for him in a way. And I love my wife. I, we can go, I can go on with forgiveness. Before he was not forgiving. He was going to divorce her. He was going to mm-hmm. shame her. And now he was like, I suddenly feel forgiveness for this, this situation. And he says as much, and it's sort of like a love thing that happens. And, and um, 
Anna's just like, you are wonderful, my husband. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, <laughs> and Vronsky, but then Vronsky feels a shift in him. He's suddenly the, the lower of the two men because he's being forgiven. And that therefore, if he's being forgiven, he must be a deceiving, not so great person. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't make him feel good about the situation. So, but before he felt like he was the better man because the husband, here we go mm-hmm. into politics of the time, the husband um, wasn't challenging him to a duel or wasn't sort of making a situation with being a man and making a situation with the lover. He was just sort of staying away from the situation. So it shifts the power there. Mm-hmm. And then, so Anna is very, is very um, in love, loving of her husband that he's being forgiving, but still wanting to move on with Vronsky. And so when I said about points and turning points, you'd think this would be a big shift in their three-way relationship, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, Anna has a dream at one point in the book where she's imagined sleeping, literally just sleeping with both her lover and her husband, which is a very progressive thing when you think about it um, as her way of solving her problem. Um, so the point, or do you think it'd be a big turning point in their relationship, but what happens, and this is very Tolstoy, they eventually go back to their same roles that they had before. Alexei, sort of loses that forgiveness ability and and Anna starts to hate her husband again and mm-hmm. it it doesn't change them. So like in a soap opera when you have a big shift much is made of the turning point and those characters become yeah. something new. In this these characters go, are going through points in time but they don't necessarily change in a, in a soap operatic way where okay. they become something different than they were before. They're just, it's just like a different shading of color in their character. And that really is, is the hallmark of this book in that um, you get like the love story that counterpoints Anna and Vronsky is Kitty and Levin. And Levin is the farmer who's very preoccupied with agriculture and Kitty is a socialite. And actually Kitty fell in love with, Vronsky and mm-hmm. there's a great scene where she sees Vronsky falling in love with Anna and you actually see Anna and Vronsky falling in love through another character Kitty's eyes but um she falls in love with Vronsky and Levin is in love with Kitty but she doesn't want Levin she wants Vronsky and then she sees Vronsky falling in love with Anna and she's humiliated and destroyed because obviously Vronsky doesn't want Kitty and she's goes to the country to try to convalesce and um, Levin is still in love with her, but he feels horrible because he was rejected humiliatingly by Kitty. So he's in love with her and Kitty's in the country. Coincidentally, Levin has a farm there and he, he hears that Kitty is not well because she's really nursing her broken heart over Vronsky. And he's upset about that, but he goes out to his farm and there's a, great description about him getting physically into the farm work and he's so into it that as through deep physical labor you can almost be brought out of your head and brought to another level of like almost you know ecstasy in a way like you like people work out endorphins that kind of thing but it's beautifully written in that way and he's so into it that he he actually says what was i thinking about before and then he goes Oh, right. Kitty is not feeling well. Like he, he, they, I'm giving this as another example of this sort of many shades of 
character in this book, like Levin is, is this is the love of his life, Kitty. Mm -hmm. And it's not being presented as an, as an unwavering thing. It's being presented like the way it's written. You read, you're like, Oh, he forgot all about Kitty for a second. And then he's, and then even to add to that, he goes, Oh yeah, right. She's sick. And then he goes, well, good. She deserves it. Mm -hmm. She she rejected me and Mm -hmm. I'm glad she's sick. And he goes on with his farming. And that's not exactly what you expect from a romantic hero, Mm -hmm. that kind of shade of um, character. Um, You know, even Vronsky like has a moment where he realizes he's hanging out with this Russian prince trying to entertain him. And he sees in the Russian prince, um, you know, the debauchery and sort of like shallow lifestyle. And and Vronsky says, it's, it's really like looking in a mirror. I'm like looking at myself and I don't like it. Mm -hmm. And he even sees himself in that moment and admits he doesn't like it. Like he's the romantic hero. And he's sort of saying like, I'm not really a great person. And then what does he do? Like most of us do immediately Mm -hmm. tries to, to fill that, self-awareness with like, well, it'll be okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really not that bad. And, you know, we don't, when we realize something about ourselves that we don't particularly like, again, like I started this whole conversation off with a self-delusion about ourselves, mm-hmm. we, we might have a moment of honesty to ourselves and then we might seek to actually push that honesty away and go back to the delusion we had. So Vronsky says, well, I'm not as bad as him. And you know, I didn't like seeing that, but like, uh, I'm a good guy and, uh, you know, I'm going to get through and then I get preoccupied with something else and not pay attention to it. So, I mean, I could, I could go on forever and ever and ever because there's so much here and so many characters and, but I just love the idea. Oh, go, go, go. Well, no, I think it's really interesting what you're saying. Like the, this idea that they're, I guess their internal nature doesn't really change even those these different things are kind of changing around them. Um, I guess I I want to like speculate for a moment to be like, you know, do you think, because you still have how many books of the eight books left? I'm on five, so three more. Do you think that in it, it will change them? (laughs) Like when you get to those other three books, like is it setting up maybe um, a situation where, I mean, clearly something Anna Karenina, like something definitely happens to her or she has a change, you know? Um, I don't know. Yeah. What are your, what's your thought process so far in well, terms of like, I mean, the future? I thought of that. Like, I I really wish I didn't know what <laughs> generally happens to her because I really wouldn't even have. I mean, it's called Anna Karenna and sometimes I question why because there's so many other oh, characters. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think he is. All right. I think Tolstoy is definitely not building to radical change in any of them. I think part of his pleasure is, is illuminating the truth of these characters. And there's that word again, truth. Um, But, but by doing what I hopefully just explained, like showing the shallowness and loftiness of, of one person, of all of us, like we all have that. Um, We're not just one thing. Um, Certainly not Mm -hmm. one good thing. There's so much, negativity and darkness in us and complaining and pettiness and and he shows that and that's startling mm-hmm. for a so-called romance i mean anna is like yeah. a royal pain right now she's just <laughs> complaining and unhappy and mm-hmm. I'm, she just keeps saying she suffers and suffers i mean at one point she she gives birth to that child she survives that sickness and she's so in love with the new baby especially since it's her lover's baby she's it says she's 
never thinks about her son that she had earlier. I mean, before she was like, I love my son. It's like very human, but a little bit startling for a romantic hero. She's just not. So, but I do think there's going to be something to be said literarily about what happens to Anna. I don't think the characters are going to change all that much, but I think there's going to be some sort of culmination of emotion. Yeah. Right. With, with what Anna does to herself, because I mean, that also, that also brings in, which we, I wanted to talk about too, but we could maybe talk about the next time since I'm going to be talking about Anna Karenna for a long time, kids. <laughs> Everyone listening is like, maybe it's time I streamed my favorite show instead of listening to it. <laughs> um, is the society in which they live because yeah. Um, and how has society in quotes changed because so much of what propels this forward is about um, Anna misjudging her culture's milieu, her society in which she moves, judging their censure. Mm-hmm. It's a scene where she goes to the opera and she sort of knows that she's on the outs because she's like a scarlet woman mm-hmm. Um but she just misjudges how, how much hate she's truly going to get. Mm-hmm. And she's shocked by it. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's a core of Anna too. Like she's, she doesn't quite understand, even though she knows the society when she lives, that her love is not honored that way. <laughs> I mean, her character, Anna, I think the reason why it's named Anna Karenina and why that character is such so resonant, I think there's more to come certainly um, is that she's pure, um, emotional expression. Okay. She, she doesn't um, think that much about anything other than her love for Bronsky, her love, lust, mm-hmm. desire, who call it many different words. I don't know. We'll see. But I think there's going to be an emotional climax, so to speak, um, <laughs> that Tolstoy is working towards with that, that suicide. Um, um, so in, in this time period, just, just speculating, cause I'm not really, uh, familiar. So it is very uncommon for her as the wife to take on a lover. And I'm presuming it's like much more common for the husband to do such a thing and et cetera. Right. Totally. There's a, there's, it's, it's see, it's again, confused mm-hmm. or not confused. It's just multiple things. It's how you play it. Um, there is something made of how a wife doing it is far, far worse than a husband. Like everyone expects a husband to. Mm-hmm. And certainly there's yet a third, uh, there's a third love story that a married couple where he's just a goofball philanderer. Like everyone mm-hmm. likes him because he's a nice guy, but he's always like, I forget that I'm even married. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, it's much worse, but if you play it right and mm-hmm. whatever that means, she could get away with it. Society would accept them if it was played in quotes right. You could even divorce at that point and still retain your name. It's in the book. A lot of it's in the described in the book. It's like how the husband handles it, how the wife handles it. But I hope you're understanding the core of this is that, um, is that, 
there isn't a rule book, just like we don't, you and I, Crystal, and everyone listening doesn't have a rule book, unfortunately. We might think we do, and certainly we, we buy and read lots of self-help books to help us give us a rule book. There isn't quite a rule book to get through it. It's that, and this is, I totally think Tolstoy is saying this, it's that deus ex machina, God thing mm-hmm. that will take or give happiness without apparent reason, will will punish a character, will reward a character, or punish, then reward, punish again a character for maybe no real understandable reason. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, me- ma- the mechanics of this affair and then the possible divorce um, are gone through a lot. And sometimes it seems to be about to work and then someone emotionally changes and it stops working. And then they talk about the society and about how the society would accept them if they just did A, B, and C. But then you get a character who's extremely religious and extremely sort of moral majority. And then that character starts causing a little bit of trouble. I mean, it's like, in life, there's no quite guarantee. And we always think we might, if we just just did what we were supposed to, in quotes, do, we'll get away with it. But you don't necessarily get away with it. I think this book could also be called Nobody Gets Out Here Alive. <laughs> you know well, what? It, the, oh, go ahead. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about, and again, this is like very much speculation on my part, but I, I do wonder if, you know, what you were saying about Anna being kind of pure emotion, if that is in some ways like tripping her up, because the way you've described her as a character, she seems kind of unlikable, but that aspect of like being under the control of your emotions to your own detriments and your societal standing and whatnot is like kind of really relatable and makes her sympathetic if that is what is happening. (laughs) Yeah. What I meant by pure emotion is like she, she can't see out of, her current emotion. And we all have lots of different emotions during the day. So, um, and you know, with a love affair, eventually the love turns into suspicion and, mm-hmm. and paranoia that you're not as loved. And okay. so a lot of what she's doing right now is sort of like, do you still love me? Mm-hmm. Because she's not feeling it. Sometimes, okay. And sometimes she's honest with herself and she doesn't feel it. She doesn't feel it, but then she wants it from him to to make to make her feel assured that it's all okay. Ronsky, you know how? Yeah, and you know how? Like when you're in love, or like it goes up and down, and sometimes you're like, oh, "Get away from me!" But then you're like, "Oh my god, no, I love you. I'm sorry." So she, she can't needs- function outside of that up and downness. She can't sort of just say, "Okay, I know it goes up and down. I'm going to be okay. We're all right." She's just in it every second, and she can't therefore get out of it. What are you going to say? Oh, I was just going to reference your earlier statement about like self-help books. I feel like she needs that self-help book, The Five Love Languages or something. She <laughs> certainly does. Uh, she needs that like verbal, verbal reassurance or I don't know. It's very interesting hearing about. Uh, well, you know, oddly enough, which startled me and, I, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure I fully understand it is that, you know what the quote that opens the book is? It's unattributed, yeah. but it's from the Bible. Um before you start reading Anna Karenina, the quote, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's the quote that opens this book. And I don't, you're thinking, what? Who's going to get vengeance? And then the more I think about it and the more we just discussed it, like I said about how 
you can plan and plan and sort of think you're doing right, even within this understandable structure of society and still make a misstep and be canceled or kicked out. Mm-hmm. I think the vengeance is mine. I will repay is almost the God figure or God saying vengeance is my business. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to get you. If I decide to get you, mm-hmm. you can't do it yourself. Meaning ultimately you can try all you want and you might succeed because I, God might let you, but sometimes I'm going to throw you a curveball, kid. Like I Zeus love- throwing down a lightning bolt. I mean, I, <laughs> I like I like that quote as a sort of a contextualizing note for Anna Karenina. But I just have to say, as you read that quote and describes um, the eyes like gods, I also feel like it's very relatable to Jack Reacher. Except the eye is him; he's the act of vengeance. I don't you know, miss, but you missed my tie-in to Jack Reacher. I did. I know. I heard it. Good. I just didn't give a, a snarky uh, a response. Uh, you didn't give a hoot about it. <laughs> I didn't get to go. I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I feel like um, listening to you talk about Anna Karenina makes me want to, I know I'm not going to read it, but it makes me want to read it. I think that says something to your ability to like really oh. investigate the, the book and interrogate it in an interesting way. Um, but yeah, I, I think. It's I'm really glad. I mean, thing. thank you. That's so sweet. That's the point. I'm not going to read it, but know. you know, it makes but me I'll want keep telling to you about it. it. I mean, it's really like, it's almost like the only novel that ever makes me feel like it's the only novel that counts because it sort of has everything in it that mm-hmm. writers since have tried to do. I mean, different periods of uh, literary style have emerged like modernism and things like that. This is sort of, you know, not that, but, um, um, and it's also historical in that like everything we think we're in a, in a world that's so unique and because we're, we're emotionally in it, but then you realize all of it's happened before. And maybe that's a delusion where we, we can't let go as human beings because we have to survive to realize we're just on a, in some ways, an emotional treadmill that it's all been done before and we're just going through it ourselves for the first time. Like um, politically just said I would finish, but now I'm not, there was a, you know, Karen and uh, Anna's husband was a politician or just like a functionary. And there's this passage described that's identical to today mm-hmm. where he politically makes a choice and then his rival does a strategic counterpoint and tries to like tear him down. And, but the way it works seems so familiar in that, yeah, I don't have to get into the details of it, but it's just politically totally, of today and then the underpinning of this political fight is and Tolstoy totally makes fun of it about how we understand truth mm-hmm. in politics and in the news which mm-hmm. is what's more current than that and Very. he describes um well um the politicians get their their facts from the local governors and the the governors get their facts from the the parish priests and the parish priests get their facts from their flock 
And so therefore it all must be true because these authorities are then relaying all this truth on up the chain. And so it's sort of like polls and data we've referred to now that underpin our sense of what is factual. Um, He's sort of making fun of like how, yeah, right. Like this is how he said, he said problems that have been around since the beginning of time suddenly are solved because these eight dignitaries decide, yeah, we have enough facts to make it so. And it's sort of just like, what is truth? I leave you with that. <laughs> what is truth? What is truth? The big question. I think about it all the time. Truth is like, we all agree on something, whether we all believe it or not. And that's what Tolstoy is saying. And then say, yeah, okay, that's true. That 80% of American housewives do X, Y, and Z. I mean, how do we know? Mm-hmm. It's living with unknowability that maybe scares us. and We can't do it. Please say you read something funny. <laughs> I mean, it was fun, not funny. What were you this is say? a total side note, but have you read the book called um, Sham? No, not Shamala. That was that was a parody. Pamela. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Samuel Richardson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was like it was making me think of it. Um, I think it was like erroneously thinking it was the first like romance novel, but I think it's like the first novel novel or something, but I don't know. Some of the stuff that you were saying was reminding me of that book. And of course I, when you think of that book, you have to think of Shamala, which was like the parody. The parody. Of it, which I so, so love that name. Yeah, it was written <laughs> anyway. at the same time. Um, well, mm-hmm. Vanity Fair is also by Thackeray is also considered like the first novel. Is it? Okay. Um, this though has emotional complexity that uh, I always seek out. Um, <laughs> that you don't really get in those other books, um, yeah. which you don't have to. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. books can do different things for you. And that's what's sort of frustrating about Anna Karenina, though, because it's it's like, you know, for all my desire for sophisticated emotional experiences, sometimes you're just like, I want to root for somebody here. Mm-hmm. And everybody is so sort of shaded complexly that, you know, you you can't, you're always like, oh, okay, that was sort of negative. Um about that person and then they do something nice and it's like you can't really it's an unstable environment just like living life Mm -hmm. you know it's like not an escape in that way and that you can sort of um think all right we're gonna root for this guy and then be sure we're gonna get the payoff Mm -hmm. like the love payoff or whatever or the tragic payoff or something Mm -hmm. some payoff I don't know what the payoff. Well, that's what you asked earlier. Like, you think it's leading to something. I don't think it's leading to a, a payoff in terms of satisfaction in, in life's goals. Um, the payoff just might be an emotional sort of climax of tears, overwrought trauma, and staring into space for about 20 minutes after we finish. Times. <laughs> it, it, it's um. I mean, somewhat related to the book that I chose, but I think it's interesting hearing you talk about that because I think as I've gotten older, I've I am less resistant and I want to say more welcoming to those kind of complex ideas in books. I think, you know, like when you're young, you are reading on a kind of very binary, like good versus evil. And and for me personally, like my entryway into a lot of books was the, uh, like relating to the characters, rooting for the characters, wanting to be them or, or, or like, you know, fight the dragon, et cetera. Um, but as, as I've gotten older, it's like, I, 
I think the books that have that kind of nuance and complexity where some of those things aren't always like resolved is like, you know, much more interesting than it was than when I was younger. I think when I was younger, I would have just like rejected those books outright as like books that were very oblique to me that I couldn't find an entry point because my entry point was always through like characters that I felt strongly for. And sometimes it's like, that's not very realistic anyways. Mm -hmm. But that said, <laughs> the book I did it. Um, I bring up that kind of that sort of tension of like, is this resolved? Is this not resolved? Because I experienced that reading this book, and it's called Brown Girls. How do I? Okay, the camera's kind of half showing the it. Wacky. <laughs> it's because of my background. Girls. Yeah, Brown Girls by Daphne Pelosi on. And Tradis, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, hopefully, who is um, an author from, I think, Queens, New York. Yes, born and raised in Queens, uh, went to Columbia University. And in the book itself, it talks about, like, young women of color, like brown girls, basically, right? Um, and it uses, like, the we as a POV constantly. So I'm going to maybe, like, read, because I, for once... You see my post-its. Aren't you impressed? Very. Are we going to um, get a reading by Crystal? A, a few. Because there was a few. It's, it's a very, it's not like a super long book. The chapters are very short. It's very, I think, very accessible. There is this, uh, I would say, a, a kind of rhythmic lyricism that when I was reading it reminded me a lot of, if you've read the memoirs, um, Ordinary Girls by Jakira Diaz. Have you heard of that mm. one? Yeah. Um, and also maybe a little bit of a priest daddy, which I think is such a uh, interesting oh. name by Patricia Lockwood. You've read that one, right? Priest daddy, yeah. Yeah. But I think the writing, uh, it's similar because mm -hmm. I find it to be very vivid with this kind of like strong sense of, of place and time. So uh, what she does in it is kind of like reference this we constantly. So uh, let's see. One of the earlier oh. chapters, uh, it, it talks about like um, people getting like names wrong in school. Um, our classmates roar with glee at their errors and purposely call us the wrong names for the rest of the week too. They call us Khadija, Akansha, Maribev, Hamina, Brianna, Sherelle, Tan, Yoon, Ellen. They call us Josie, Roxana, Sonia, Odalise, Annabelle, Kira, Jenny, Cindy, Esther. During lunchtime, we call our teachers different names too. Uh, dumbass, idiot, old lady B. <laughs> um, uh -huh. you know, we steal a permanent marker, scrawl stupid on their classroom doors above posters that read knowledge, wisdom, discipline. From the corner of our eyes, we study each other while we hold our styrofoam lunch trays, wait on bus stops and stretch in gym class. Our sneakers skidding against scuffed floors. Think, her body is not mine, is not mine, is not mine, and yes. There's this kind of real sense of like lyricism, almost like poeticness to a lot of it. Um, let me see if I can find another one. Um, mm. Let's see. And she uses this we. The we, the word we is very interesting to me here um, because this we, I think, will start to reference specific experiences that maybe internally I presume that maybe the narrator has experience, but then it's also meant to be this very expansive thing, uh, describing the experiences of a variety of brown girls whose sort of ethnicity is implied by like the naming of their names and these individual experiences. 
And so another part, it says, um, we are 3,000 miles away in New York City. We are in Boston, Philly, D.C., and other East Coast locales. We have not gone far. We are two years out of college, American girls with American degrees. Never mind that some of us majored in art and other so-called impractical fields, poli-sci, English, international relations, even biology. Anything that wasn't a pre-professional track, a clear-cut road to our future selves. But what, we're asked on multiple occasions, are you going to do with that degree exactly? Um, when we graduated, our families reasoned, well, degree is a degree, a subtext, even if those degrees don't put food on the table, sub subtext, we are so American, we believe our college degrees have nothing to do with skills and salaries. Uh, this is our privilege. It kind of like goes on. But I think it's it's interesting because that idea of the sort of complexity that's brought up, and I don't entirely new, and this is something I'm still working through, is whether or not it's entirely like resolved for me or does it even need to be resolved, right? And it's that like that we is so broad and it's also like very specific because it is describing so many different kinds of experiences. But the through line is we are brown girls and in that there is this sense of like solidarity. Right. But in that kind of expansiveness, it also sometimes feels really reductive, which also feels like really true to life. And I think maybe speaks to um, the larger challenges uh, within BIPOC communities when we do try to strive for solidarity, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like, you know, you like said when reductive? I, in, yeah. I think in that's striving to be expansive, it can sometimes feel that way, right? Does that make sense? Yes, it's very interesting though. And and I say that and I and I'm gonna bring in a little bit of like my personal experience, which is like, you know, in terms of specificity, like I'm Chinese American, but I self-identify as Asian American as this kind of act of solidarity, right? Mm-hmm. With with other people who are I'm East Asian, who are like Southeast Asian, South Asian, right? And and thinking about like solidarity within that community, but at the same time that term Asian American and sometimes what's often used, which is Asian American Pacific Islander is very, very reductive because how can you um, condense experiences of so many different peoples into this one name? And even now I think there's Mm. a real strong push for, from the Pacific Islander community to no longer be a part of this like larger Asian American uh, AAPI naming because it ends up doing more harm than good because we will often say, you know, we're doing a AAPI program or we're doing this, but it's not actually inclusive or specific to Pacific Islanders. And in that way, it's harmful because we're not offering like the resources that we need to be, right? So like we need to make room for um, programs and other things uh, to actually address those issues, right? That can be very, I mean, I'm now going on this like weird rant, but it is this thing of like in, in these acts of solidarity by, by trying to to use maybe like an umbrella term, how is it good? Is it bad? I don't really know. And I think this book is interesting because it sits in that kind of uncomfortable gray mm. space. Like I think I, in some ways I want more resolution, but I also recognize that resolution is not always like real life. <laughs> um, and so I kind of appreciate that the book doesn't always give that resolution, but it does kind of offer. That um, is, it's a, Offer what? Uh, a, 
uh, I'll say like a platform to kind of engage with that conversation. Well, maybe it, it's that's a you really bring up a great question too about just life too about the we. Like if there's a we, then there's a they. Mm-hmm. And if you're not the they and Good you're point. the we, what is the they? Who are the they? Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was saying before, because Anna Karenin on the mind, what I read, mm-hmm. like society, whenever I say the word society, I feel like it's lazy because it's like, what am I? It's such a shorthand for a they. Like mm-hmm. when we say society, we usually mean something bad. Like, well, society tells me that my body should be this way mm-hmm. and they should my, that my, the society's beauty standards. And it's like, well, and I think this is what you're saying partly is like, what do we mean by society? Cause like when you think about it, we are society, they are society, but we are as well. Like we are part of it. Like you can't really say, Oh, society says, because you are also in that society. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Although you mean predominantly or, or how you perceive it, how you, you take it in. And if it's you, it's how one takes in a message from the outer world. And then if they don't, we don't like it, we can almost blame it on they. Or if we are truly getting, as we discern, truly getting um, negativity, shall we say, um, then you legitimately can blame the they. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. It does seem like the wind. Well, when you were reading that passage, the we, um, as I was listening to you, part of my feelings was that, oh, I'm excluded. Mm -hmm. Not just because of the the content. Well, no, I guess maybe because of the content. I was like automatically thinking. And then when the we was used, it's like, well, that that doesn't mean me, obviously. Mm -hmm. How do I feel about reading that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I don't think I'm, technically part of the we either, right? But I I I like what you're saying about the the idea of the they because the they is not really referenced, but it because of the use of the word we, like that is kind of ever present because it is pushing against that idea, I think. Um I do have another chapter to read. It's it's like two pages. <laughs> Hey, it's a marathon. <laughs> We're going to end up with three-hour podcasts. Coffee. You no, know, as long as we finish by 12.30, I think that's fine. But yeah. this chapter is called uh, Hyper Slash, I don't know if I'm supposed to read a slashes, Hyper Slash Visible Slash In Slash Visible. I'm just going to read it out like that. Um, that's the name of the chapter? That's the name of the chapter. Okay. Hyper Visible Invisible, basically. Oh, okay. Uh Brown girls, brown girls, brown girls who, in a nutshell, become big shots. We sit atop stages in London, Sydney, Hong Kong, in the front of lecture halls at Princeton, NYU, and Oxford, who speak on panels and give interviews and lead conferences and are, and are quoted as experts on the state of X, Y, and Z, who other sentences that begin the ways in which and the intersection of, and it's apparent this work is emblematic of, blah, 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 blah. Oh, Lord, excuse us, but could somebody please cut out our tongues? We touch the mask we've learned to wear, gaze into mirrors at our better selves. Library. Sorry, sorry. Library. We stutter. Lie, lie, library. Library. We are congratulated. What a splendid presentation you gave. An excellent performance. We mash our fingers to our straining smiles. Thank you. We chirp. It's so wonderful to be good. It's so wonderful to be good enough. 
afterward and bathrooms replete with air fresheners that automatically spritz a cucumber and cantaloupe perfume at specific intervals, a scent that does not completely mask the underlying smell of piss and s. Um, we perch on toilets. We grasp the edges of our mask and find we cannot tear them from our faces. We gain recognition for our work. How does it feel to have achieved so much as a woman of color in your field? What does your community think of your work? Are you their hero, villain, savior? What do you make of the state, fill in the blank, in the U.S. with regard to your art, your research? Of racism, immigration, the newly elected president, formerly a businessman and reality TV star. Do you know he's from Queens, too? We stiffen. We are determined to keep our responses apolitical, lest we offend. We are afraid to bite the hand that feeds us because we are the good immigrant daughters, the oh-so-hardworking ones, the paragons of the American dream, aren't we? But for what? For whom? Nobody asks about the work itself. We are so visible, we have become invisible. Odd that in this moment we dreamt of, we are faceless. Um, I, I really love that chapter because I do feel like at that point, I, I think it's like sitting with that um, the duality of those kind of ideas of being like hyper visible, invisible, of of being like very expansive, but also maybe like reductive in some ways. Um, and I also do feel like, you know, just like reading through that chapter again, even though I don't think I'm specifically the we, like the we of brown girls, right? I do feel like anybody who sits at the margins in different ways and different parts of their identities will find um, a way to like enter this book and uh, grasp it and really relate to it. Um, I don't know. Anyways, I really like it. I, I enjoy this one a lot. So I it's, recommend. It's interesting. I mean, it really does bring up a lot. Like, uh, I mean, like what I was saying before about truth, like what is truth? And it brought it up for me for Anna Karenina, like what is emotional truth? <laughs> Forget about truth and news and who reports to whom and what we believe and how we get what we get. But um, emotional, how do, we, how do we know what we feel is true? Like I made the note about when I said about Vronsky, who, who said, I'm really not that great a person because he saw himself reflected in this debauched sort of dissolute cad. <laughs> and then he was like, I don't like that. And he even says later at one point, he felt like a deceiver in the house of his lover, Anna. And he says, I don't, I don't like feeling like, like a deceiver. I'm a good guy. Um, like, how do we know it's emotionally true? We decide it. Mm-hmm. We decide it. Because when you were saying, um, when you're reading that quote, and then you were saying, you know, anyone on the, on the margin could mm-hmm. identify. And it's like, how do we know we're on the margin? How does one mm-hmm. know? And how do how does one know that they're invisible yet visible? Like, mm-hmm. how do we know that? Like, how do we emotionally feel that? Um, you almost could choose, could maybe choose mm-hmm. to feel differently, but maybe it, as Anna points out, just by her existing, you can't always choose your emotions for sure. <laughs> they are, they are, and sometimes they're just not surmountable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting how we know what we know. Well, I think society is like telling us constantly. Well, there's <laughs> not always, society. not society. always in very like obvious ways. Like, oh, you are at the margins of society. But you know, in different ways, and how um, certain things uh, kind of rise to the top. You know, like you know, for just like a very general, generic example. Um, 
fashion beauty magazines, right, where light-skinned people are constantly on the cover, right? And I think that is an unconscious way of society kind yeah. of saying to you, beauty is a Europe, white European standard, right? Um, and so that's the ways that I think we are constantly bombarded with this. And, and it takes a lot of, like, internal um, assessments of, of the kinds of things that have um, – taking roots and uprooting that and rejecting those things too, uh, because we can very easily then output that kind of um, ideology ideas. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't even asking the question for an answer. I mean, I'm just, Oh, okay. I was giving you an answer. No, I didn't mean that. I mean, I meant, I don't know. know, The answers are difficult, but they're, you know, it's sort of like that thing. It's like that line from the musical chorus line. Never heard of it. You never heard of it? No. Chorus line? Oh, no. Dear. Anyway, um, what I think about a lot, like, you know, that's that phenomenon, like in, let's say, middle school, mm-hmm. when we're young, um, I mean, you could say society gets to us early or I don't know, but how, you know, when you're, you start developing a sense of like, whether you're pretty or mm-hmm. not pretty. Mm-hmm. or whatever you are, like your sense in the, almost the animalistic hierarchy, which we tend to want to hierarchize the world, human beings, mm-hmm. um, emerges. And the line from the chorus line is a character says like, you know, um, she's realized this, the per- character realizes that she's not pretty. She's mm-hmm. different. And her mom said, her mom says that, you know, you're different, which is really good, which is different, which is good. And the girl says, yeah, different's nice, but it sure isn't pretty because pretty is what it's about. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she says, I never met anyone who was different who couldn't figure that out. And that's really true of like high school or younger, like when we realize, oh, I'm not really, a, I'm not one of the cool girls or I'm not one of the in guys. Like you sort of get your sense in the hierarchy right away. Mm-hmm. And then you might even fight against it like you know oh this is just high school that's why when i get out i'll i'll become better and i don't i i guess and then nectar revenge yes yes and then god says vengeance is mine (laughs) um well but it's just riffing on what you said about identity and about how we know what we know about ourselves and whether we're in or out by the society's standards and that's really also anna karen again like what you know with the affair how they play it will define decide whether they're in or out of that society. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess the, the empowering message is that, like I said before, like we are also society. So, and like you said, you can change it. Like the standards of beauty you were talking about. Um, those standards can be changed and they do change automatically. I don't know. It's an interesting time oh, yeah. for that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? It, it, huh? No, what? Oh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the idea of change, right? Because yeah. I, I feel like, yes, I would agree. But I think it, it's, it's like a lot of those things require like systemic change. And that can be a lot more like difficult in some ways. Um, but I think we're maybe. Yeah, it's it's all really just so interesting. I like I was when you were talking about streaming before, like I and I streaming. was streaming. 
streaming. streaming. I was talking about streaming. Well, you're talking about, we were talking about shows. Or, I don't know. Earlier, oh, yes, ago, yes, like two, yes. Two and a half hours ago, we started this podcast, or yesterday. Yes, I saw the, um, the, and I was singing the Go-Go's the last time, the Go-Go's documentary. Mm, and you know the Go-Go's, like the first most successful female, all female band of all time. Do you um, want me to lie to you? Don't know. Of course not. Okay. Then anyway, I don't know them. well, the Go-Go's, yeah, they're in the early eighties. So it was like when I was young. Um, but um, the lead singer, Belinda Carlisle. Okay. Um, that name sounds familiar. As, as she also was a solo artist later when, you know, Ooh, baby, do you know what that's oh, worth? That's, okay, I, I've heard of that. It's a place. It's used on TV shows. See, this is why you should sing more. So I, once I hear it, I'm like, I recognize that. Okay, great. Ooh, baby, is a place on earth. <laughs> All right. Um, so I do know the go-go's. Okay, Belinda, great. Yeah, well, that was Belinda Carlisle when she okay, went solo. Well. But um, she, in the documentary and also I, what she said since is that she was like, they were an all-girl band and um, – mm-hmm. I'm to, to, I believe me, I'm riffing on what you said. Um, she was, well, I don't know. See, now I don't know what to call I'll, her. I'll be, uh, Beautiful, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the world did. But a lot of the press, shall we say, said she was plump or chubby, mm-hmm. um, cute, but plump, pretty, mm-hmm. but chubby, you know, that kind of thing about her, mm-hmm. her looks and Belinda Carla in interviews said that, you know, it messed her up a lot like that more than anything else, like sort of did a number on her. But I, what I thought was interesting, what she said, what was that up until that point, she'd like never thought twice about her looks that way or, and certainly never had trouble with boyfriends or being attractive. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you were just talking, it reminded me of that because it sort of has a split between what we say society says and experiences as it's actually lived. So in that story, Belinda Carla is basically saying, they call me plump or chubby, which I guess are not good things. But in my actual life, I was fine. I felt yeah. fine. Mm-hmm. Boys wanted me. Girls didn't make fun of me. I mean, everything was fine. Like mm-hmm. suddenly when I'm in this role as a pop singer, Suddenly I'm chubby. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying is that the standards are sometimes very separate from life as it's actually lived. And so when we get caught up in standards, are we really, what are we really saying? Like as a, as a, as an outsider to that story, what am I taking away from it? Like, Oh, she's saying she lived a perfectly fine life. Mm-hmm. But yet the society said, oh, you're, but you're not perfect. You're this problematic person, chubby, plump. You know what I mean? Like, what am I saying? It's sort you of know, an interesting thing when we get caught up in standards of so-called society. Again, we are society. So if yeah. her experience was not that, what what is society doing? Or what is the standards doing? Trying to make money, I guess. Or be yeah. mean. Like, but just I- to be mean? Like, are we just mean naturally and being nice is sort of secondary. Well, you know, I, 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 I got to go on that rant about capitalism, which is yeah. <laughs> that whole thing about like how I think in a certain kind of societies, in order for things to be like at the top good, there has to be people at the right. bottom bad. Right. And that's mm-hmm. a terrible way to like set up society. In some Anyways, um, but what I liked about what you were saying too, is like uh, even the language that you use, I think it also shows that maybe the power of language, because when they're saying she's pretty, but 
plump, yeah. it automatically puts plump as like diametrically opposed to pretty versus using the word ands, right? Because you can be both plump and pretty and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. like that kind of language specifically puts it in this category of like anti-beauty, which I want to say she isn't the only author, but let me, the author of Thick, which is Tracy McMillan Cotum, has like a Mm -hmm. great essay or a few essays that really kind of addresses the idea of like beauty and rejecting that. And I feel like there was, I want to say another author I read recently, which I can't remember, that also did something similar to that. And maybe we discussed it, but my memory is gone. Um, Anyways, I feel like we should pick a tarot card. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know. Hi, welcome back to day three of the librarian is in. All right. Well, this I don't know, they can edit it up and just turn it into like one low hum for five minutes and then move on. All right. Well, do, I don't care. I know what it is. is oh, what the producer happens, just popped on. She's like, this is what happens when I have like coffee with friends and we talk about we start talking about a book, then we start talking about all these other all things right. and whatever that happens. All right. Now and then Ooh. we get a tarot card reading at the end. I just, okay. So I pulled an ace of cups, oh, but it's, okay. I pulled it upside down. For, but this, that. Does that mean ace? something? Doesn't it mean something? When you're, when reversed, it's right side right? up, it's reversed. All right. Okay. So, so gonna... ace of cups looks very meaningful because it's sort of like, so it's not like, you know, overcomplicated with numbers, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, all right, let me. I'm looking at my little book. Where is uh, you guys? Know, what am I doing? Cups. Oh, I opened right to it. Reverse. Cups. Okay. The waters are beneath, are upon which are water lilies. Oh, yeah. Um, the hand issues from the cloud, holding in its palm the cup from which four streams are pouring. A dove bearing in its beak a cross marked host like a religious host, wafer, descends to place the wafer in the cup. The dew of water is falling on all sides. It is an intimation of that which may lie behind the lesser arcana, whatever. Divinatory meanings, (laughs) true heart, joy, contentment, abode, nourishment, abundance, fertility, holy table, felicity. Now, I did pull it. Reverse does mean upside down or, yeah, Right. What else could it mean? So the reversed means false heart, mutation, instability, revolution. Oh, revolution. I like that. I don't like the instability part. That does not. See, you want to stick to your own personal delusions about your life. (laughs) Therefore, reject instability because it makes you uncomfortable. So you have to cleave to what you believe is true about yourself rather than accepting Mm -hmm. the fact that it might be unstable. But let's go with revolution. Let's go with revolution. In other words, I, the, the revolution the producer is going to commit on us for actually <laughs> talking for so long. Um, <laughs> one girl revolution. There she goes. Wait. So what were the what were the other words you said? Instability. Instability. I put the card away. Oh boy. Uh, false heart. False heart. Okay. What does that mean? I don't know. What does it like mean? Like a fake relationship. This is maybe this is maybe this is in relation to Anna Karenina. Misrepresentation of mm-hmm. yeah of what you think it might be like being deceived, deceived. I 
I'm looking at the the bidetarot.com and it's saying that it could also mean repressing your emotions. So not wanting to express yourself fully to the outside world, which I feel like we talk about everything. I don't know. Unless you're holding secrets from me. Okay. Um, and then <laughs> like, it says, okay. <laughs> in, oh, so you may worry that if you allow your feelings to flow, they might turn into an overwhelming flood that can't be switched off. Yep. In a relationship reading, which clearly this is a relationship, the reverse ace of cups can show that you are withholding your emotions for fear of getting hurt. You know that you must trust in your partner for the relationship to move forward, but for the time being, you are holding back. So whenever you're ready to trust me, Frank, I'm here for you. You know, we could go on and on because you do inspire me. That fear of, when you just said fear of being hurt, I, for some reason that knocked into my head and I thought, what does that really mean? I think it's your relationship. Like, how can we be fearful of being hurt? Because we don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. In a way, fearful of being hurt might just be fearful of revealing something that we don't mm -hmm. think will be liked, I guess. Like, I like to think that this... Or we don't like it about ourselves. We don't want to yeah. acknowledge it ourselves. And I like to think that your most important relationship is the relationship that you have with me and Chrissy. But I also sometimes think it's really about you and Jefferson Market. So maybe you need to think about this in relation to how you feel about Jefferson Market. All right. I think we are going to end this right now because you just touched on the <laughs> sore spot of my life that I am actually in a relationship within the library. Yeah. And I'm talking about a full... You're afraid of getting hurt. <laughs> there is nothing else. <laughs> and I never thought I could be, because I thought I would be safe with an inanimate object, like a library. You, I, But it has betrayed me and that it has needs that I can't fulfill. Like it, its pipes need to be fixed. I but, but the lesson from the Ace of Cups is that you need to like trust in that relationship that maybe like all of those projects will get done and they'll be fine and you can move forward with the opening. How do I know you're not being a false heart? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love how we end up with love at the end. It's all about <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this. This was cool. Crank, really, logging off. That's really what got a say. groove on. Fristol, <laughs> signing off. <laughs> See you later, Crank, Frank. crank out. <laughs> crank out. Crystal yes. in. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to The Librarian Is In. Thanks for listening to The Librarian Is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.